You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop in a very special series of episodes. All week long, I will be diving into a ton of movie references in K-pop songs and music videos. Movies that have inspired K-pop stars or are rumored to have inspired them. All things the K-pop cinema connection. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. The first movie we have to talk about today, The Grand Budapest Hotel. It's a comedy slash kind of a drama from 2014 with a huge star-studded cast, and it takes place in a fake country, Zubrauka. Mostly, this has inspired K-pop videos for aesthetics, not plot. Bam Bam did his kind of homage to the pastry boxes, the delivery boxes, with his own version with his name on them. In his video for Ribbon, there's GWSN's Puzzle Moon video, where one of them wears the lobby uniform from this movie. There are other K-pop artists, too, over time, who I believe were influenced by that hotel lobby outfit, hotel lobby setting, or even just the color palette, the giant pink boxes, etc. from this movie. And K-pop videos also do seem to take some influence in use of props as motifs, meticulously choosing wardrobes based on character traits, and using color to tell the story. Like in this movie, as the war gets closer, the color scheme gets grayer and darker. The story is starring this guy Zero in 1932, who works in a hotel lobby in this big hotel. There's this guy, Monsieur Gustave H., who seduces older women as like his hobby in wealthy people. He exploits people. He's a greedy, unlikable dude. And he has that attitude of, yes, I know I'm a jerk, so what? One of the people he messed with was Madame D, an 84-year-old. The core of the plot centers around Boy with Apple, the name of a famous Renaissance painting made up just for this movie. Actually, they did commission a painter for it just for this movie. And that painting is so big because it is the subject of a lot of fighting about who gets it in the will. Greedy Gustave is naturally suspect number one after the Madame dies. So he gets arrested, befriends the gang members in prison who help him come up with an escape plan that Zero helps him out with by basically delivering pastries to the prison and inside the pastries are tools they can use to dig out of there. I didn't say the story made sense. Zero is committed to helping Gustave and being his partner in this effort to prove his innocence, that he didn't kill the madame. They team up with other concierge people too. They call themselves the Society of the Crossed Keys. The plot thickens, of course, not only because it escalated quickly and the hotel turned into this military headquarters, but also because they find out the madame had two wills. A second one that would only take effect and mean anything if she was murdered. Again, I didn't say this plot made sense. So they are trying to figure out where the secret will is. Maybe thinking, hey, this will help prove his innocence, not focusing on this will where Boy with Apple was set to go to him. 
because that's the biggest reason they think Gustave did away with her, to get that famous painting. The pastry motif is back because this girl Agatha tries to smuggle the painting out, but she's caught, shot at, and her and Zero get away by basically hanging off a balcony and then falling below into a van full of pastries. Eventually they find out the second will is in the back of the painting, and on the back they see that everything goes to Gustave. So her second will actually kind of made him more culpable, it seems. More likely to have killed her because he was going to get even more money and stuff after she died. But despite the possible nefarious activity, it seems like whatever now. Water under the bridge. Maybe because of the, the way he befriended people in prison. He has connections now. Gustave becomes the new owner of this hotel, inherits a ton of money, and Zero and Agatha get married. Although their appeasement to the selfish dude, Gustave, does not pay off because their honeymoon plans, their life plans overall, get messed with when the soldiers that Gustave is technically in charge of get away with destroying Zero's refugee documents. There's yet another fight. Gustave ends up shot and killed. So now Zero inherits all the money and power. But he still can't live a happy, satisfied, fulfilled life because Agatha ends up dying. She's not shot, she actually had pneumonia, as did their infant son, so he's alone. You spent the movie groveling at someone else's service, thinking it would help your proximity to power and wealth eventually. It did help, but at what cost? This is just one interpretation. The director actually has said it should be up to interpretation, specifically staying tight-lipped about what you're supposed to focus on. But of course it brings up questions about oppression, corruption, people using each other, turning on each other, guilt and innocence. Which is why I think it has had such a big impact on video after video from musicians because those are all very timeless themes to explore. The next two we're going to talk about pretty quickly. One is the movie Le Boom, which brings to mind the K-pop group Le Boom. And it's actually a French movie. It's this rom-com from the 80s about a high school student. The title also translates to The Party. It's kind of a coming-of-age party, and she's upset her parents won't let her go to the boom. So that's one storyline, is young love. The second storyline is her parents' marriage troubles. There was a sequel out in 1982 where Vic, the main girl, meets someone and has another coming-of-age moment, shall we say. And her parents actually end up back together happy. And her great-grandma is even thinking about marriage. Kind of a nice, refreshing twist on a sequel. Relationships of characters who were happy before deteriorate. But these guys get back together, so... Next, I want to talk about Chungking Express. Named after the Chungking Mansions in Hong Kong, and Express referring to Midnight Express, a food stand in central Hong Kong. This is a rom-com, but also a crime story from 1994. It's one of those that got a lot of praise for its aesthetics, not for its narrative. So it's for cinema buffs to just immerse themselves in watching, not for the plot, just for aesthetics, the visual of it all. I bring this up because it has been cited, rumored to be an influence on the video for Bittersweet by Mingyu, Wanwu, and Lehigh. The way the camera work is... The slow motion technique is comparable. 
There are two main stories. The story in part one is about this dude who gets dumped on April Fool's Day by a girl named May, which is kind of accidentally funny. And this whole symbolic gesture is him buying pineapples every day. He buys a tin of pineapples every day that expires in May because May loved pineapple and it's his routine tribute to her. He cannot get over her. But some film scholars would argue it's it represents something deeper about the need for physical tokens to remember people in places that mean a lot to us. It's kind of a replacement for actual physical presences and ability to still have them physically in your life. At least you can physically have an object in your life instead. There's also a separate story involving a drug ring. I don't know. But the second part is about a different romance between this woman named Faye and this cop. They plan to date at a restaurant, go to a restaurant for a date, and the place is called California. And Faye's favorite song is California Dreamin'. Another symbolic thing you could read into, how it's this focus on, you know, where Tinseltown is. Bigger dreams, the American dream, whatever you want to call it. When he shows up and Faye stands him up, he finds out from her cousin that she left for California. For real California, not the restaurant California. But she left him a boarding pass. This guy ends up buying that snack bar they'd planned to meet at, so flash forward to the grand opening of his version of the place that Faye attends. He hands over this DIY boarding pass she wrote out for him in what I guess was supposed to be a romantic gesture, and this is so corny, I can't with this. He hands back this DIY boarding pass at this meeting one year later. He asks for her to write up a new pass, and she does, asks where the destination should be, and he says, wherever you will take me. Come on. But there are some aesthetic and editorial camera work decisions that are much less corny and add to the drama too. And the connections you could make to music videos. Like how the monologues, focusing on one character at a time, is a big part of story progression. How a soundtrack shapes a scene as it unfolds. This movie's actually credited with really helping bring dream pop to Hong Kong, like the cranberries and stuff. This was also big for Candy Lowe, really helped her music career there too. So using music and visuals to tell a story in a compelling way is the bottom line. The director apparently also took inspiration from Haruki Murakami, who I did a whole episode about, so I like that. There actually is a Another deep symbolic aspect of this story, which is the references to 0.01 centimeters and how that's kind of the distance they say between people in busy city streets. So this is referring to the sense of loneliness that can somehow envelope you in a crowd where you are just 0.01 centimeters away from other people. Your fun slash that explains a lot fact of the day for this movie the script actually wasn't finished until mid-filming. This next one I am so excited to talk about. I don't honestly recommend tons of these movies, but this is one I recommend. It's so sweet and touching. It's called Love Letter. It's a Japanese movie from 1995. It was actually one of the first Japanese movies to play in South Korea after World War II, and twice nod to it in a way that I will get to as we get into the story. There's this girl, Hiroko Watanabe, who lost her fiancé, Itsuki, in a mountain climbing accident. Despite knowing that Itsuki's house got replaced by a highway a long time ago, she decides to write to its address anyway. 
looks up his name in the yearbook, finds the address, writes a letter, I guess just for the catharsis of it, psychologically to feel like he's still there with her. She is shocked, naturally, when she gets a response. Eventually, she finds out the response comes from someone, a female with the exact same name as him. She actually learns later on in the movie that she had looked up at the wrong name and associated the wrong address with her boyfriend. That actually, the address she wrote down and sent the letter to was addressed to this female, Itsuki, by mistake. Something she doesn't point out to this person. And they kind of have this kinship. They feel like fated, I guess, that they interacted. Especially because Itsuki, the female, looks a lot like Hiroko. Which gives her a bit of an identity crisis makes her question if her fiancé liked her because she looked like this other girl who he did know and befriend. Despite female Itsuki's dad dying after fatal pneumonia that he refused to get checked out at a hospital, she's coming down with a cold and refuses to go to the hospital. Meanwhile, Hiroko is trying to move on, or at least is being forced to try a little, to move on from her fiancé with her friend Akiba, who actually really wants to get with her. Akiba and Hiroko take a trip to actually meet female Itsuki in person, hoping that will bring some closure. They get all the way there, but then it's just too painful for Hiroko to continue, and she leaves a letter explaining everything and leaves. Although in this letter she says, I'm sorry I messed up, we should stop contacting each other because I thought you were my fiancé with the same name. She does not mention this fiancé has been dead for years. As they leave the house, the taxi driver who takes them home makes a comment like, hey, I just drove someone home who looked just like you. Of course, it was female Itsuki after she left the hospital because she eventually did have to go in for pneumonia. All the flashbacks in the movie show that the Itsukis had a hard time being their own people because they seem to be characterized, defined by their name. Teased about who got a good grade on a test, maybe trading papers, getting called a couple or thought to be a couple, you name it. If they could swap roles or people could assume they swapped roles, they did. Male Itsuki had a job at the library, and he had a habit of, this is a symbolic gesture you can read into if you want, he had a habit of when a book seemed uninhabited, I guess, a literary world unoccupied, when no one's name was on the checkout card, he would fill in his name. So at least someone had ownership of that adventure. So people kept wondering why female Itsuki kept putting her name in those books. And she has to explain, it's not me, it was him. This is the famous scene where twice from the What is Love video, they recreate this with Jihyo. Hiroko goes to the mountain with Akiba, the mountain where he died, for more closure, and yells out into the wind, into the universe. Yells out the letter's contents from the first letter sent to female Itsuki before she realized it wasn't him. So now she asks the real Itsuki from her past the same question she put in the letter about how are you. Jihyo recreates that moment in the What is Love video by yelling into the wind, What is love? I want to know. Female Itsuki, who has collapsed, gone back to the hospital, wakes up in the hospital, miles away, after this yelling into the wind, this fateful connection they have. She can't escape hearing her name yelled out even when the other guy is dead. Yet she has this other moment you could read into for deeper meaning, where she feels very touched and like an individual. When she finds on the back of one of the checkout cards in a library book a drawing of her, a beautiful little drawing of herself by Mei Itsuki. 
In a weird funny twist, the voiceover ending the movie is female Itsuki writing to Hiroko, quote, I am too embarrassed to send this letter. There's a lot throughout the movie you could point to and say she's referring to as what she's embarrassed about, but leaving it up to interpretation is kind of fun. We have some more Twice What Is Love video references to unpack today, including the movie Ghost, where his arms are wrapped around the main female character in the movie that is recreated in What Is Love. Ghost is a romance fantasy story from 1990. And it's about this banker who gets killed, but then his ghost stays on Earth to basically help his girlfriend, Molly. He really wants to save her life, because the guy who murdered him is still out there. He enlists the help of Oda Mae Brown, a psychic, to help him do this, which is really complicated by the fact that this psychic is actually not credible at all. The public, by the time he wants her help, doesn't believe anything she says. She's lost all credibility, they know she's a con artist, really, and she is, she's not good at this. Or is she? Because all of a sudden, even to her own surprise, she is a psychic for this one guy. She actually can see the future for him, and she's appalled that it works, but she wants to keep his trust, and maybe earn the public's trust back too, and cynical interpreters could say, so she can get back to profiting. Sam, the ghost, is really feeling betrayed because Carl turns out to have been a friend who was in cahoots with Willie, his killer. And Carl helped sneak a book of passwords to Willie and then set up a new bank account with those passwords under the name Rita Miller, fictional person. Basically, he's trying to take his money. There's this spirit that lives in the subway station and tries to teach Sam how to do things, how to actually use his ghostly powers to make a difference in the real world. Because he can't just move stuff physically anymore. He has to move objects with his mind, so he has to learn that skill. In this plan to take the four million wandered dollars back, Sam enlists Oda May and says, hey, you pretend to be Rita Miller and get that money back, which she does, ends up actually just giving to charity, good for her. Carl finds out the money's gone and is frantically trying to be like, what the heck just happened? And then he notices Sam's ghostly presence after Sam types a message on Carl's computer. Willie, Sam's killer, wants to pay a visit to Oda May, but Sam scares him so badly that he flees and gets hit by a car as he's running away. And the evil spirits come down and you see them carry Willie straight to hell. In what's, I guess, supposed to be touching and not creepy, Odame offers her body so Sam can possess it for a second and have one last slow dance with Molly, which she does. But Carl now tracks down Odame, holds her at gunpoint, demands the money back. Sam once again indirectly kills a guy. Carl ends up dying because, long story short, his escape plan went kaput, and Carl is now seen being dragged literally to hell. Now that the friend who betrayed him and his murderer are both dead themselves, Sam's mission on Earth is fulfilled. He feels accomplished, and now, finally, once Molly can actually hear Sam and feel his presence, now it's time for him to leave, so he enters heaven and the movie ends. Another movie with a scene referenced in Twice's What Is Love video, La La Land, a musical romance from 2016 the one starring Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, which actually originally was going to be Miles Teller and Emma Watson. And it's funny, actually. Emma Watson didn't play the main character in La La Land because she instead spent that time playing Belle in Beauty and the Beast, the latest live-action version. 
and Ryan Gosling ended up in La La Land because he declined to be in the Beauty and the Beast one instead. So they basically switched jobs. The story actually came about when two film students worked on a Harvard thesis about this jazz musician. So the two main characters are Mia and Seb, short for Sebastian. Mia is a down-on-her-luck actress, blowing auditions, gets her car towed, road rage. It's just not her day, it's not her year. She actually, just to twist the knife more, she gets to work on the Warner Brothers lot as a barista. And then there's Seb, who's a jazz pianist, and he dreams of opening his own jazz bar someday. Mia enters the bar he works at, the restaurant, is entranced by his piano playing, his jazz improv, and witnesses him getting fired by his boss for doing so, for being creative, because he was told to strictly, at this time of year, stick to Christmas music. Mia runs over to him to compliment his performance anyway. He kind of just brushes her off and moves on. But then they fatefully happen to keep crossing paths and decide to date. At this point, Seb has gotten a new job, which he doesn't like as much. It's not his real dream. Working with an 80s pop cover band. This becomes a source of fights between them because Mia thinks he's giving up his true dream way too soon. And that he should be focused on and invested in really trying to bring this jazz bar dream to life. But instead, he's just doing this other gig. She thinks he's wasting potential and not fulfilling his true passion. She's disappointed in him. She took a risk and set up a one-woman show. Mia continues to have the worst luck and Seb bails on her on opening night. He said, oh, last minute photo shoot I forgot about. What the heck? The play also flops because it's just a small reception that doesn't really respond well. It's kind of just lackluster. Not the breakthrough she wanted. Or so she thinks, as she sadly moves back home to Nevada. But then, a casting director calls Seb, trying to get in touch with Mia, saying he saw her one-woman show, and he wants to offer her a big movie role. Seb drives all the way to Nevada to tell her in person and encourage her to go, which she does. I probably would too, but I would still be really ticked off at Seb for missing my show. I don't know if I would forgive and forget so quickly to just jump on his advice, but whatever. One moment you could read into, if you want to get your sociology slash film scholar hat on, is that in this audition, all that is asked of Mia is to tell a story. And she does. She talks about her aunt inspiring her to pursue being an actress and follow in her footsteps. So all she needed to succeed was someone taking a chance on her and opening the floor and letting her creativity do its thing. She just had to be herself, basically, in the most corny takeaway from this. Seb and Mia actually go their separate ways, pursue their different dreams, and both say they'll always love each other, but they're not together. Five years later, we see that Mia is married to someone else, and she has a kid, she's now a successful actress, and Seb owns a jazz bar. Mia and her husband just so happen to visit said bar. When they get there, she locks eyes with Seb playing the piano, realizes it's his, and he starts playing their special song on the piano. Aw, or ugh, depending on who you are and how you think about that, there's this montage of what could have been if they had stayed together, an alternate future, back in this moment where he's playing their song as a tribute to her and their relationship, they just lock eyes, smile, and leave again. They don't go up and talk to each other, nothing more happens, nothing more comes of it. Some fun facts. 
This movie was not going to be made for a while because no studio wanted to take a chance on a jazz musical. Not really an audience for that. But after his success, the creator's success behind Whiplash, studios were more willing to work with him. The movie leaned on inspiration from films of the 20s and 40s. It also nods to Sinning in the Rain, as does the setting that looks kind of La La Land-esque in BTS's Boy With Love video. They filmed scenes in over 60 locations, trying to embody the variety and vibrancy of LA, aka La La Land. They also tried to film in one-shot takes, to channel the same strategy as the 50s musicals. So it was meant to kind of be an homage to several decades of old movies and something new. Another movie widely praised that we gotta talk about? Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever seems to have inspired Twice's What is Love, as well as Roly Poly by Tiara and When We Disco by Sunmi and J.Y. Park. It's actually inspired by this New York Magazine article, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, from 1976. The issue actually drove some scrutiny because the author Nick Cohn worded his writing in a way that led many to think it was nonfiction, when it was largely fiction, and actually he had been writing about a subculture he was not a part of, nor had much clear insight into. But the article adaptation went forward in 1977, and it really launched both John Travolta's career and the popularity of disco music. It's set in this working-class neighborhood and is about this 19-year-old named Tony who goes dancing to break out of this monotony in his life. The crowd goes wild over his dance moves. It sounds like the movie is really praised not so much for its plot as the dancing, the music. It became a pop culture classic because of that impact on pop culture, on music, on dance, on the party scene. Some moments film scholars read into, though, one is when Tony hangs out with his friends on this bridge a lot, like a, a bridge to a better life he seeks. Two, Tony's brother, Frank Jr., is really shamed by his family after quitting the priesthood and admitting to them he never wanted to pursue priesthood. He just did it because they wanted him to. And so Frank Jr. warns Tony, don't do what I did, keep on dancing, do what makes you truly happy, not your family, just you. Three, when Tony wins this dance contest, he thinks this Puerto Rican couple danced way better, deserved the award, and did it because of racism. Implicit or not, he thinks they deserved it, and he hands them the trophy and prize money. Another big moment, the movie takes a dark turn when this guy Gus ends up hospitalized after a gang beats him up. And later, it turns out, Gus may have identified the Ron gang, a realization that doesn't dawn on him before people in his corner seek revenge and crash the dude's car. The movie ends kind of blah, where Tony and his partner Stephanie decide to just stay friends. Some fun facts. Cohn himself actually did write a screenplay version of his article, but after one draft, he was fired. They made that cool, lit-up dance floor effect in a DIY way with tinfoil and Christmas lights involved. So if someone's like, hey, it's March, take down your Christmas stuff, just say, I'm not celebrating Christmas. These lights are to pay homage to Saturday Night Fever. And to avoid crowds of fans showing up, 
the crew created fake call sheets, so super fans got the wrong info. Speaking of movies that had a huge impact on pop culture in more than just the realm of cinema, the Rocky Horror Picture Show was based on the stage musical from 1973. This story is set in 1974. It's a musical comedy horror that pays homage to B-movies from the 30s to the 60s in sci-fi films, so it really is like a loving tribute to those B-movies and also kind of a satirizing of them. Just really taking the super ludicrous elements of those B-movies and blowing them up even bigger. Just laying it on thick, the exaggerated everything. It was such a tribute, actually, that they even used some props from the classic movies. Like the dummy is the same one used in The Revenge of Frankenstein. It's interesting, though, the costume designer had never seen a horror movie before signing on. She just helped channel this glam rock look that took off. And the quirkiness of how this turned out was exacerbated by the fact when this was just a stage musical, the actors did their own makeup. The film, though, got David Bowie's makeup artist, one of them. The film really took on a life of its own, thanks to the fans. At first, it really was doing poorly, so much that some opening night viewings in the USA got canceled in advance. Truly flopped until fans started dressing up as characters in it or channeling their same glam rock aesthetic. These fans also ended up becoming what they dubbed shadow casts. So they would go to screenings and lip sync and act out the action happening perfectly in time with it unfolding on the big screen. And audience members got kind of rowdy and fun, and they would respond in real time and engage in conversation, basically, with the movie characters. So the audiences became super fun, lively. That interactive spirit really made seeing this an event, a spectacle, which was kind of the point all along to make a spectacle. Compared to everyone else, this really plain-looking couple, Brad and Janet, show up to this castle. Their car broke down, they need a place to stay, use a phone, get help. So they end up in this castle full of people celebrating the annual Transylvanian Convention. This guy, Dr. Frank N. Furder, he's in charge of the show. He's also a mad scientist, and he's the creator of Rocky. He made Rocky in a lab. He messes with people all the time. He uses his magic, makes himself look like Janet, to seduce Brad. Janet feels bad for Rocky after seeing these two, Riffraff and Magenta, bullying him, so she quickly goes from tending to Rocky's injuries to getting intimate with him. Brad and Janet's former science teacher and current UFO investigator, Dr. Everett Scott, enters the castle because he's looking for his nephew, Eddie, who Dr. Frankenfurter had killed with an axe earlier, calling it a mercy killing. I don't know. Eddie was there as a delivery boy, and I guess the delivery was not to his liking. Frankenfurter then ends up using this Medusa transducer device to turn these main characters into statues, dress them up in costumes, and force them to perform a live floor show as supporting acts for the show starring him. A lot escalates quickly mid-performance. Riff Raff and Magenta show up, cause more trouble, Frank ends up dead, Rocky picks him up and jumps off a roof into a pool, now Rocky's dead. 
Somehow it's going to space, so Riff Raff and Magenta warn Brad and Janet and Dr. Scott to leave ASAP because this castle is going to end up moving into space as they try to steer it to Riff Raff and Magenta's home planet. It ends with the people who are left surviving after the chaos, crawling around on the ground, being compared to insects. And the narrator says they're just, quote, lost in time and lost in space and meaning. The story was actually going to be in a series with a sequel called Rocky Horror Shows His Heels that got replaced by the movie Shock Treatment, which was more of a standalone thing, and it became a stage production actually in London. A third movie was also worked on called Rocky Horror The Second Coming. Nothing ever came of that though, as of recording time. Seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show actually makes the parallels obvious in Shiny's video for Married to the Music. The font, the graphics, this spooky night of supernatural behavior, the big party setting, the big convention of sorts going on, they're kind of turning into monsters, their drinks turn their skin blue. Then there's the iconic image from Rocky Horror with the disembodied lips. Those are put on the food and start sinning with them. Other kooky stuff, they lose their noses, mouths, eyeballs roll out of their head. It's a madhouse. And of course they have that classic, shiny, odd-eye era uniqueness to their eye-catching wardrobe. I really miss their odd-eye era. Really great stuff. Really quirky. Let's talk about some Disney movies, but the non-Disney version. And of kids' stories in general. The original. I know that's technically then not a guide to the movies, but this is way more interesting to me. And I didn't realize how dark some of these got. So first let's talk about Pinocchio. The original title in Italian being The Adventures of Pinocchio, The Story of a Puppet. The dark version was actually always a kid's book from the 1880s before it became a Disney movie in 1940. It follows this old poor man, Geppetto. He's a poor old man literally and metaphorically. He really wants to make it his career to be a puppeteer. So he gets some magic wood and his wooden creation, his wooden puppet, comes to life and that's Pinocchio. This Pinocchio is a jerk. This is like Chucky before Chucky. Pinocchio treats this old man terribly in the original version of the story. And then Pinocchio runs away. So Geppetto grabs him, but by grabbing him in public, he's arrested for basically, I guess, alleged kidnapping of a kid. While Geppetto is in custody, Pinocchio goes home to what he thought was an empty house and finds the famous talking cricket, his conscience, talking to him, saying, you need to stop treating that old man so terribly. Pinocchio doesn't care and kills the cricket. This Pinocchio also really gets in with the wrong crowd, fox and cat, bad influences on him, and they team up actually against him to steal money, money he was supposed to spend on Geppetto. So fox and cat, okay, really disturbing detail ahead. Fox and cat end up to take his money, hanging Pinocchio. This blue-haired fairy shows up. Yeah, I know, this story's whack. Saves Pinocchio at the last second. But Pinocchio is still in trouble, because you know his nose grows long when he lies, and he lies about what happened to his money. He still, after this, goes back to hanging out with Fox and Cat like it didn't happen. It's like Lucy and the football, and they keep again and again trying to trick him out of money, but he keeps being their friend again anyway. For odd, inexplicable reasons, Pinocchio ends up living with the savior fairy like she's his mom, and he's her son. 
Somehow, a lot happens, and then he ends up swallowed by a shark. I know, I can't believe this. And guess who else is just chilling in one piece in the shark's stomach? Geppetto. As his reward for rescuing Geppetto, evidently, taking him home to safety, and then agreeing he's going to start taking better care of him, the fairy turns Pinocchio into a real boy. The author's original goal was to end the story with the hanging scene. None of the whale stuff, none of the other weird twists and turns, ending with the hanging scene, for the moral of the story being look after your elders, as well as, I guess, don't trust people too easily, don't tell lies, I don't know. Pinocchio's death was meant to be impactful on kids, but this character, this evil character, was so beloved, the author had to write more per their demands. There are a couple of K-pop songs that reference Pinocchio. There's FX's song, Pinocchio, aka Danger, talking about recreating, sculpting this puppet, breathing life into something, turning Pinocchio into a boy, kind of a euphemism for giving your significant other a makeover. And then there's Taemin's Pinocchio, a song he did with B.Y., with lyrics like, I want to get caught behind the smiling mask. Without realizing, my eyes were turning cold, my lies towards you, with a poker face, I'm used to it. Rather, I want to be Pinocchio, me who have gotten used to lying. Where's my childhood innocence? Sincerity hidden behind the smiling mask, I want to be a frank Pinocchio. That song really zeroes in on the wanting to live honestly part of the story, which is funny in hindsight because the background context is that the don't tell a lie, live an honest life as your true self part of the story was tacked on. The main lesson was about treating your elders better. Now let's talk about Beauty and the Beast, the OG. It's of course the name of the K-pop band Beast, and the fandom is the beauty. The Rose has a song called Beauty and the Beast, in a shiny Sherlock video, they find this Beauty and the Beast type situation. Only the case instead of a rose holds jewelry. In the original version, this rich merchant is raising six kids. Beauty, her two sisters, and three brothers. Six kids this single dad is raising. The two girls are kind of like evil stepsisters. They are such jerks to Beauty. Very jealous of her. They're very small people. This merchant is going into town and asks his kids, what do you want me to get for you? The sisters want some very lavish things, expensive things, no regard for their dad's budget. Beauty, to not add to the price tag too much and burden him, which is weird because the story starts off clarifying he's rich, but anyway, she says, look, all you have to get me is a rose. A single rose is what I want. He somehow ends up in this terrible storm, terrible weather, lost in the woods, and he decides he has to find a place to stay for the night. And in this weird reverse Goldilocks, he ends up inhabiting the beast's place. He takes their food and wine, he makes himself at home, sleeps in a bed in the castle, all of that. He doesn't actually see the beast until the next morning, when the beast says basically, I'm going to kill you in 15 minutes, so get ready. When he explains, no, please, I was just taking one rose for my daughter, he says, oh, a daughter. Fine, I'll spare your life, but bring her here. He does, and Beauty really is treated like a princess. Lavish meals, a big, beautiful wardrobe, access to her hobbies, all the roses in the world she could want. And she even starts to look forward to her dinnertime talks with Beast, who always comes out at that time, and they really bond. He does, though, keep pushing, asking if she'll marry him. 
and she keeps having to reject him, but she does feel bad every time she has to say no again. Beauty finds out her dad is really in bad health, and she wants to go check on him. The Beast, at this point, would just hate to see her unhappy, and says go visit, but please be back in a week. So Beauty goes home to visit her dad for a week, and talks about this plan to her sisters, who decide to be next level awful and hatch a plan to kill their sister by basically saying, let's make her feel so bad and guilty for leaving at the end of the week that she extends her stay. The Beast will think she didn't listen to orders, she wasn't planning to listen to orders, he will throw a fit, he will be enraged, and he will end up killing her upon her return. The weekends, the sisters cry, make a big scene. Oh no, don't go, don't go. Dad will miss you too much. So she stays longer. When Beauty returns, this ridiculously overly dramatic beast sprawls on the ground and looks like he's about to die. Like he's sick. He's like, I can't believe you left me for this long. And basically guilts her into saying she will finally marry him. So messed up. But it worked. So both him and the sisters were manipulative, awful stuff. The curse is broken, though, and the beast becomes this handsome prince that he was before the curse. Some fairy makes her presence known in the castle and sentences beauty sisters to a life of being statues as punishment for their envy and their evil plan. So she gets to be with the guy and her sisters get comeuppance, but the beast behavior is just like, cool, cool, that's why you got married. In the episodes A.T.'s Wonderland and A.T.'s Return, I talk extensively about Alice in Wonderland. And the ways I see Alice in Wonderland, it's all my theorizing, not confirmed, but my way of viewing what A.T.'s story is all about. I do think they were influenced by Alice in Wonderland, and I go into the reasons in the A.T.-specific episodes of the show. I also have a Wonderland episode of How to Stan that will be coming out at some point. So I won't dwell on this too much right now, but I will say that it is heavily influential in K-pop video aesthetics. First of all, there's the whole Boyfriend Bounce music video and the Boyfriend in Wonderland album. A whole era for giant teacups, the famous tea party, Mad Hatter outfits, painting the roses red, giant books, disproportionate sizes, changing views of what's really going on. The pocket watch, the famous rabbit. For some reason, they actually fall down the rabbit hole at the end of the video. So that begs the question, was real life for them Wonderland? And the real world for us is their version of Topsy-Turvy? It's also thought to have influenced EXO's Love Me Right video. When Schumann wakes up in that grassy area, like Alice did, wake up from her wild dreams. And Shanyol really did look like if Mad Hatter went to Clone High like modern-day Mad Hatter high school student vibes from his outfit. With ATs in those AT-specific episodes, I emphasize their symbolism with a clock, a watch, etc., a sense of being trapped in youth. They literally have a song called Wonderland. At one point, they crawl through this hole in the wall. I also think it's quite possible TXT was inspired by Alice in Wonderland. The magic and whimsy of their videos, the it was all a dream, vibes of some. They fall off a cloud, made me think of fallen down the rabbit hole, metaphorically. They paint roses as well. Butterflies, watches, clocks, the symbols are there. Red Velvet, I believe, has been inspired by some of the funhouse-esque oddities of Wonderland as well. Wendy's dress definitely had big Alice vibes in the set of teaser videos for one of their comebacks. Then there's CLC's fandom. 
Cheshire makes me think of the Cheshire Cat. You never know. And then, of course, Gugu Dan's Gugu Dan Theater production of Wonderland turned into like a play for their debut, The Little Mermaid. Yeah, so if there's some sort of influence and you just can't pinpoint it on a K-pop video aesthetic, a safe bet is a touch of Wonderland. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you all next time for more movie talk. Bye, everyone.